as we continue our uh, walk through this uh, minor prophet. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, authoritative, all-sufficient, and efficacious word. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that you would be pleased to teach us, to instruct us from your holy word this evening. We pray that our hearts would be open to receive that which would bring correction and rebuke and training and righteousness, so that we would be equipped for every good work. We pray most of all, Lord, that you would point our eyes to Christ, who is our righteousness, who is the perfect and greatest missionary, who came from heaven to save us, to rescue us from our sins and what they deserve. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. John G. Payton, or as some would uh, say, Patton, P-A-T-O-N, was a famous 19th century Scottish missionary. He grew up in Glasgow uh, in a godly, reformed, and Presbyterian home, and from his youth, he possessed an uncommon evangelistic zeal. After working in an inner-city mission in Glasgow, along with attending university there uh, during his 20s, Peyton began to sense a call to take the gospel to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. The New Hebrides, or what is today called Vanuatu, is a grouping of about 80 small islands just east of Australia, literally in the middle of the ocean and a world away from Scotland. What made the call to the New Hebrides uniquely challenging, however, was not primarily its remote location or its primitive way of life or the fact that the people there were unreached with the gospel. It was that they were cannibals. They were cannibals. Yes, those whom Peyton longed to reach with the saving knowledge of Christ were cannibals. Later, Peyton wrote, quote, I saw them perishing for lack of the knowledge of the true God and his son, Jesus. While my Green Street people had the open Bible and all the means of grace within easy reach, which, if they rejected, they did so willfully and at their own peril. Peyton's zeal for the glory of God and his compassion for these unreached peoples compelled him to rise and to go, to leave his Christian homeland, to leave the comforts of his homeland, to go to a far-off land inhabited by cannibals. And to know the story of Peyton is to know that his decision to go to the New Hebrides was not without great suffering and sacrifice. Indeed, within the first three months of his traveling there with his young wife and new baby, his wife and child died. And it was a 
a, uh, their graves served as a place that was so stinging to him and, and so hard for him, and yet he believed that the Lord had sent him there. And so he entrusted them uh, to the Lord. Uh, the Lord, however, used his ministry to bring many to faith in Jesus Christ. Later, Peyton was remarried and had a very long marriage, I believe somewhere between 25 and 40 years, uh, as he served alongside his second wife on the mission field. Peyton's missionary zeal and compassion for the lost are an inspiration uh, to modern Christians. He is an example to us all. The Scottish missionary also provides us with a profound contrast to the reluctant prophet Jonah. Peyton rose up and went. Jonah rose up and fled. We have much to learn from both of these responses, but this evening we're going to focus on the latter because we are in Jonah. We're in these opening verses uh, in the book of Jonah. There are three points we're going to consider uh, this evening. Number one, a divine commission. A divine commission. Number two, a willful response. And number three, a sovereign and merciful God. You'll find those, uh, uh, those points in your bulletin if you would like to follow along and jot down a few notes. The first thing we see here is a divine commission. A divine commission. Look with me again at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Perhaps you'll remember from my introduction last week that Jonah was a prophet of Israel from the northern kingdom. He lived and ministered in the 8th century B.C. under King Jeroboam II. And he is, of course, briefly mentioned in the book of 2 Kings. He received the word of the Lord because he was a prophet. And as a prophet of God, Jonah's main calling, duty, and privilege was to deliver the word of the Lord. It's the same for preachers today. And while preachers today, while pastor teachers who are not prophets and not apostles, but pastor teachers, we preach what we have received, namely that which is in the text of Scripture. God's word is to be delivered as it is received, without addition, omission, or revision. We do not sit over the Scripture and decide what ought to be preached. We are under the Scripture and it is that which we preach. We preach what is before us, not what we put before us in our own words. The prophet's main job is to go to those to whom he is sent and to preach the divine word that he's been given. He's called to preach the word of the Lord and not his own word. He's called to preach the word and not keep it to himself. Too often in modern-day evangelicalism, and we see this also, iterations of it in our own quarters, even in our own uh, denomination, is that the problem is not necessarily what's being preached, it's what's not being preached. It's what's being withheld. It's what God's people need to hear in a time where there is a crisis in the life of the Christian church, and Christians need to hear their ministers proclaiming the truth and the hard truths that are in contrast to the, the, the values of the world that are being heaped upon God's people over and over and over again. And so 
The prophet is called to preach that which he has received. The same goes for pastors today. It's interesting to take note that the Hebrew expression, the word of the Lord came, found here in verse 1, is a common expression, and it's found over 100 times in the Old Testament. This is the way it works. God reveals his word to his prophets, and they deliver it to God's people. Pretty simple, right? That's how it's supposed to work. In our day, of course, preachers don't hear directly from God, as did Jonah and the other Old Testament prophets. Rather, they, that is we, have God's inspired and authoritative revelation found in the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. Most who disparage the Old and New Testament know very little about the Old and New Testament. This is the revelation of God. Paul declared to the Ephesian elders that he did not shrink back from preaching what? The whole counsel of God. Prophets and preachers are not called to cherry-pick the Word of God and to preach those more palatable sections that are more easily received by God's people, but rather to preach the whole counsel of God, to preach the difficult passages that are there as well. I remember early on in my ministry, there are certain memories that one has early on uh, in ministry, and I was uh, the senior minister of uh, Grace Presbyterian Church in Douglasville. Uh, the church had just been planted a year and a half before, and uh, the pastor took another call, and uh, so I came in, and it was almost like a church plant in a lot of ways, and I began preaching First Peter. Uh, Donald McLeod over in Scotland had shared in a class when I was over there uh, studying under him, that he had preached First Peter uh, to his first church as a senior minister. And so as a 31-year-old, I began preaching the book of First Peter to uh, my new congregation. The reason why First Peter is helpful in that respect is because there's so much in First Peter uh, that deals with all different kinds of subjects. Well, we came to that section in First Peter chapter 2, that talks about how Christ is the rock of offense and that those who reject him were appointed uh, to do so by the Lord. <laughs> so I was dealing with this difficult text. It's not the text you necessarily you know, choose to preach if you're a visiting preacher somewhere. It's a hard truth. It, 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 it bangs up against our, our natural sensibilities as individualistic Americans. So I began preaching this and explaining it and and there goes one family, get up, and they walked out the door. And then another family got up and walked out the door. And I was thinking, oh, boy, I hope there'll be some people left after I get done with this sermon. But this, this is the calling on the prophet, not to pick and choose what to preach, but to preach God's word, nothing more and nothing less. The great 18th century, 19th century uh, Cambridge preacher, Charles Simeon, taught his preaching students, to give every text, quote, its just meaning, its natural bearing, and its legitimate use, to ascertain from the original and from the context the true, faithful, and primary meaning of every text. It's what Jonah was called to do. It's what Jonah was called to do, to proclaim what he had received from the Lord. It's the first Massive point made in the book of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Preachers today must do the same. 
from Holy Scripture. So that's the first thing we must hear, the word of the Lord, the word of Almighty God, the word of Yahweh came to Jonah. But notice that this word from God came with a specific command. Jonah was told to go where? To go to Nineveh. He was told to go to Nineveh. Look there in verse 1 again. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. What do we know about this great city? Well, we touched upon this uh, last week a little bit. Uh, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. It was located about 600 miles northeast of Israel. It was uh, the seat of the Assyrian royalty uh, since the 13th century BC, and it was one of Israel's main political enemies. The Ninevites were also a violent and brutal people. They terrified their enemies, both their enemies outside and whoever was on the seat of the throne, their enemies inside, through profound acts of cruelty towards those whom they conquered or those who would threaten the throne. Inscriptions on ancient temples reveal the depths of their cruelty. An inscription by an ancient Assyrian king states this, quote, I flayed or skinned alive as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of bodies. Some I erected on stakes above the pile. Some I placed on stakes around the pile. I flayed many right through my land and draped their skins over the walls. I slashed the flesh of the eunuchs and of the royal eunuchs who were guilty. I brought Ahiyababa, the ruler of Suru, to Nineveh, flayed him and draped his skin over the wall in Nineveh. Nice bunch. This is the cruelty, the wickedness that existed in Nineveh. Descriptions like these are plentiful, and they are often depicted in reliefs in Assyrian architecture as well. The Assyrians had a reputation for grisly brutality in war and at home. In addition to being a political enemy, a seat of idolatry, and a city of great cruelty and violence, Nineveh was also a large city. We learned that it was a three days' walk across the city. There were, as we learn at the end of chapter four, 120,000 persons. This is a massive city in the ancient world. Now, what ought not to be lost on us this evening is that God wanted his word preached in Nineveh. He wanted his word preached in Nineveh. Yes, we see accounts like Sodom and Gomorrah where the Lord has given them over and has rained down his wrath and fury upon him, upon those, that cities, those cities. But here we see God's word going to Nineveh. This was God's purpose. He wanted his word preached in this city. And here's the thing. In our politically polarized world, we sometimes think more about cities in political terms than spiritual. Rather than pray for cities and pray for those who are in those cities to have a faithful gospel witness, those who are Christians in those cities, we often forget about them. 
Rather than pray for the millions who exist in those cities, we write them off on political terms and with political jargon. God didn't forget about Nineveh. He sent his prophet to them. He sent his word of judgment and promise to them, despite all of their profound wickedness. I remember not too long ago preaching at a pastor's conference in Southern California, and I was surrounded by uh, mutual native Californians, uh, pastors who were laboring in what is a difficult state to minister in now. Uh, despite the challenges that take place in California, uh, I myself at times have guilt that, that I am not there laboring. It is a place in desperate need of the gospel. And I urged these men to consider not joining the exodus out of California, but to stay and to minister to the millions of people that need Jesus Christ. I understand that there will be certain situations where people need to get out for various situations. I know everyone's situation is different. But preachers should not run simply to the safest place, to the most comfortable place. These men are courageous, and I thank God for them serving in the various parts of California, many of them receiving persecution. We should not write off certain cities or states simply because we hear terrible things about them on the news. We should pray for them. We should show compassion. We should get behind the ministers who are there and encourage them. We want the gospel to be preached and the word to grow in those areas. Amen? That's what we want. God sent his prophet to Nineveh. And I would suggest that there is no city anywhere in the world that is as wicked and violent as the city of Nineveh. And God wanted his prophet to go there. So Jonah was called to Nineveh. It was a specific command. But what else did God tell him to do? Well, it's right there in God's word. Look there with me. God told him to call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. He didn't command Jonah to go in there and give five tips for being a better you. Uh, he didn't tell Jonah to go in there and give a, a message on the power of positive thinking. No, he said, call out against it. Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah was called to preach a sobering message. Well, now, this heavenly command might come as a bit of a shock to some modern ears, to those who think that God's message to humanity is merely one of love and patience. But those who think this are unfamiliar with God and unfamiliar with his word. This sobering message that Jonah is called to preach is the same one that we find from Genesis 3, with the fall of mankind through Revelation 22. It's everywhere. God's judgment and salvation are always held up together. Always they are held up together. This was the sobering message that sinners must repent or perish. 
It was the message of the Old Testament prophets. It was the message of the New Testament apostles and pastor teachers. And it was the message of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, wasn't it? Indeed, his very first sermon preached in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17 was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Wouldn't it be good to hear more of that word, repent, in our pulpits today? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Are we more loving than Jesus Christ himself? Or the apostles, that we would refrain from using these biblical, important terms that would call people to repentance. Faithful biblical preaching calls out sin. It teaches its hearers the nature and consequences of sin. Why? So that people will turn away from that sin and be saved from its consequences. So that people will turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. Now, some have wondered if Jonah's message was only judgment. You say, Pastor, did he really just walk through the streets and call out against Nineveh? Is that what he did, just a message of judgment? Well, that's all we have here in the text. I would say that it's likely that there was more to the message than that because we see later on uh, that the Ninevites said, uh, perhaps God will have mercy on us if we turn from our sin, right? And so there must have been something that they knew or heard of anyway, at least, about this God of Israel that was merciful, unlike the wicked idols that exist in other places and in their own land. And so how does Jonah respond uh, to God's divine commission? He received the word of the Lord. He was given a direct command to go to Nineveh, that great city, and to preach against it. What did he do? Well, he responds not submissively, but willfully. Willfully. It was a willful response. That's our second point. Look at verse 3 with me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Those two words, but Jonah. But Jonah reveal a rebellious heart. God told him to do something. The instructions were clear. But Jonah was going to do things on his own terms. What about us? Wouldn't it be terrible, as we think about our own church, our own lives, if our story was told in a thousand years, and the story was told that we had received a direct command from Christ to go forth into all the world and make disciples, but Christ's church rose up and did something else. But Christ's church rose up and did something else. Or how about us personally? How about our families? I think of myself in, in ministry. What's going to be the story, say, in a thousand years, if, if the Lord tarries? Will it be but John? Or but, put your name there. We are all not called to be foreign missionaries. We are all called to be salt and light in the midst of a corrupt generation. Amen? We're all called to be that. 
and to be involved in various ways through prayer and financial support and encouragement of the missionary enterprise. The Great Commission is very clearly in its primary application for ordained ministers. After all, it says, go forth into all the world and make disciples, what? Baptizing them and teaching all that Christ commanded. And so that is a full-time ministry, teaching all that Christ commanded. That's an expository preaching ministry. It's a teaching ministry. It's, it's baptizing, which is to be in the hands of lawful ministers. But the Great Commission has secondary and tertiary applications for the people of God. We are all to be behind the work of the Great Commission, being salt and light, giving an answer to those who ask, telling them about the hope that's within us, being salt and light in our community through our various vocations in which we serve, whether as a teacher or an attorney or a musician or whatever, that we are salt and light in the midst of our community, pointing people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would not be like Jonah in his rebellion, receiving a clear command from the Lord and doing the exact opposite. But Jonah, may we not be like him in his rebellion. Rather than begin his journey to Nineveh, Jonah went in the opposite direction, to Tarshish, by way of Joppa. Tarshish was located in what is now southern Spain. And by fleeing to Tarshish, Jonah was attempting to flee, the text says, twice, from God himself. He was fleeing from God himself. Indeed, two times in these few verses, we are told that Jonah was fleeing from the presence of God. Now, Jonah was an Old Testament prophet. And he knew the doctrine of God, I guarantee you. He knew that God is omnipotent, that he's, that he's excuse me, omnipresent, that he's everywhere. And you can't flee from him. One commentator states, sin makes people stupid. I actually had a chuckle in my study. It was, uh, it's not the kind of thing you usually read in biblical commentaries. But it just makes the point. Think of the sin that... Some have embraced, that perhaps you have embraced, and where you have just literally shut off everything you know to be true in order to engage in this sin, our activity. Sin makes a person stupid. This is true. And those caught up in sin try to hide from that which makes them uncomfortable in their sin. Now, Sinclair Ferguson commented insightfully that Jonah was fleeing the felt presence of God, that Jonah knew he couldn't actually flee God's, God's presence, God's everywhere, and yet Jonah wanted to flee the felt presence of God. In other words, if he could just get away from his fellow Israelites, his countrymen, from the means of grace in the synagogue, and those to whom he might be accountable then he would be, in that sense, away from God's presence. It's what people do today who run from the church and the means of grace where God's saving presence is with his people. But what we must realize is that no one can truly run from the presence of the Lord, ever. You've heard the phrase, you can run, but you can't hide. This is especially true when it comes to to our relationship with God and, and being in the presence of God. You remember what Adam and Eve did after they sinned. They hid. 
they hid from the almighty God, creator and sustainer of the universe, who is spirit and does not have a body like we do. He, they hid from him. Here, I'm going to hide behind this big banana leaf. Maybe God won't see me. This is what we do when we feel the shame and the guilt of sin. We want to run. That didn't work too well for Adam and Eve, of course. And knowing what happens to Jonah, it didn't work too well for him either. We are reminded of Psalm 139, verses 1 through 10, a psalm which is meant to be a comfort to God's people. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 10. Turn there with me if you have your Bibles. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So let's just stop right there for a moment. Such knowledge of the presence of God with us, the psalmist says, is, is knowledge that is too wonderful for me. God is with me. He wants to be near me. I walk with him. He has his eyes on me. He has his eye on the sparrow, and he's certainly watching over me, the one whom he has, by his grace, saved from sin. And so we come to verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You see, the presence of God is a joyful comfort when we are walking with him. Nobody walks with God perfectly. That's why we need Christ. We need God's grace and his mercy. But in God's grace and mercy, we, while we still struggle with indwelling sin, we do not live in that sin and embrace rebelliousness. And when God says to do something, we don't rise up and do the opposite and run in the opposite direction. And if we do that, we repent and we turn back to the Lord, don't we? Again, Sinclair Ferguson writes, we cannot escape God's presence even if we are not joyfully in it. What are some reasons for fleeing from God. Now, we could come up with all kinds of things, and some of this is conjecture, but, you know, if we were talking to Jonah, he would come up with some reasons that would make us think, yeah, that's, that's, that's understandable that you would flee when receiving this command uh, from God. Uh, and uh, I, I think um, also of a, of a time when a few years ago, this is probably four or five years ago, I got a, a phone call from a man whom I consider a mentor and a friend, and he called about an opportunity in uh, Jakarta, Indonesia. And uh, after the conversation, I, I took it to prayer. Marla and I prayed about it, whether or not we should do it. 
And uh, really what we came up with was, well, if it was 10 years ago and we weren't just right into this church plant in Charleston, we would go. Uh, and uh, so I was speaking to uh, my daughter, uh, who was much younger at the time, and I said, uh, honey, you know, we've been praying about going to uh, Indonesia as missionaries. The opportunity, I could tell you, the opportunity was, is absolutely extraordinary in terms of the, the impact in that part of the world. And I shared with her what we were praying about, and I said, but, you know, we've made a decision to not do it. And, I, and uh, she said, are you sure we're not doing that? <laughs> and I said, well, honey, if an angel from heaven came down and told me, then we would go. If it was very, very clear, we would go, but I, I don't think he, he wants us to go. And she started crying. I said, what's wrong, sweetheart? She said, what if an angel does come down? I don't want to go there. You know, uh, it's a, you know, the, the, through the mouth of a child, um, we, we even hear our, the, the, the fear of our own hearts. But when we think about these reasons why Jonah may not have wanted to go, uh, uh, they make sense to us. First of all, um, these were Israel's enemies. We've already mentioned this. These were Israel's enemies, and Israel despised them. He didn't want to go. Secondly, we've already mentioned this, they were violent and dangerous, and he was called to go by himself. The command here wasn't, get a big group of people, make sure you have your claymore swords, and go over there. No, it was, you go and preach against them. I don't think Jonah wanted to be skinned alive and draped over the city wall among the scoffers. Thirdly, it was a long and dangerous journey to get there, 600 miles. We can conjecture about all of these things, but we do know one reason for sure that Jonah didn't want to go. And we see it in Jonah 4, verses 1 through 4. Look there with me. After Nineveh received the word of the Lord and repented, Jonah 4, verse 1, says this, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Now, before we look down on Jonah and shake our heads in disgust and disbelief, over this reluctant prophet. Let us examine our own hearts. How often have we, and I'm saying we, all of us, this preacher included, how often have we had this same kind of attitude towards our enemies, towards nations that we would consider enemies of our nation, 
How often have we exhibited this same attitude? Do we pray, for instance, for God's mercy on the Taliban? Do we have compassion on the Chinese and the Russians that they would come to know Christ? Or do we simply listen to the talking heads on TV and all the political polarized commentary? Do we long for brutal North African Muslims to come to Christ and for revival and reformation to break out in those lands? Is it not our joy and duty as a church to pray for the persecuted and also for the persecutors? Pray for those who what? Persecute you. These are stinging rebukes to the modern church. And I think particularly in our own context, in our own highly politicized, polarized context, particularly with elections coming up soon and with elections coming up uh, in a couple of years, the presidential elections, there will be the temptation to size people up based on their political views or on the wickedness and idolatry of, uh, of their nation. Do we pray for the persecutors in our world? And this leads us briefly to our final point, a sovereign and a merciful God. And can I just say, when people disparage the Bible, when they raise their fist at God and act as if God is a harsh and unloving God, I will say this, that if people attacked these individuals' families and rebelled against them in the ways that people have rebelled against God throughout the ages, they would not be nearly as merciful as God is. And none of us would. If we ever think that we are more merciful or more gracious than God, then we are fools, and we have been deceived by the evil one. God is so gracious and merciful and loving that he would send his prophet To Nineveh, what is he trying to teach the church by doing this? That we too ought to have a heart for the world. That we too ought to have a heart for our enemies. That our first impulse ought to be to pray and have compassion on our, and compassion for our enemies, not to be filled with rage and anger towards them. There is a place for righteous anger. I understand that. But these are principles we must not forget. Now, a sovereign and merciful God. Remember what I said last time about the main theme of Jonah. Jonah is not primarily about a great fish who swallows a reluctant prophet. The book of Jonah is chiefly about a great God who loves guilty sinners. A great God who loves guilty sinners by sending them the sign of Jonah in order to point them to the fulfillment of of his covenant promises of salvation in Christ. Once again, I want to read from Matthew 12, 39 through 41. Matthew 12, 39 through 41, where it states, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. 
But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be, will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with the generation, with this generation, and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah is a sign of Christ. Christ who would come and obey the law that we fail to obey. To die on the cross that we deserve to die on. And as the innocent sacrificial lamb atoned for our sins, that which will be represented to us at the Lord's table through the bread and the wine. Jonah is a sign pointing to Christ as the one who was in the earth, that is in the grave, for three days and rose triumphantly, conquering sin, hell, Satan, and death for us. And so that no matter what happens in this world, no matter what kind of moral chaos our culture delves into, we have the hope of the resurrection. We have the hope of eternal life in Christ, the the glorious prospect of the new heavens and the new earth. We do not despair. We live with that gospel hope that Christian had in Pilgrim's Progress as he made his way to the celestial city. And so finally, by way of application, let us pray that our hearts will be filled with compassion for the nations, all the nations. God gave Jonah the command to rise up and go to Nineveh, to proclaim his word in Nineveh, and he has called his church today to rise up and go into all the world and make disciples. Jonah rose up in rebellion and went in the opposite direction. May we rise up and go to those to whom God has called us to go and to make disciples and be salt and light in this generation who needs Christ as we do. Secondly, pray that God would raise up new missionaries to go to the nations and provide us with the resources to send them. May we pray as families and as a church and in our prayer meeting and whenever we have opportunity that God would raise up missionaries to take the gospel to foreign lands and nations. There's a wonderful ministry out in California, uh, which is, spe- is reformed, and it's specifically focused on sending missionaries to unreached peoples around the world. I've had the privilege of meeting some of these uh, young men and women uh, who are courageously going into very challenging, uh, dangerous places to take the gospel. May the Lord bless them, and may the Lord raise up more, uh, even within our own congregation. Thirdly, Pray that God's gospel would compel us to evangelize the lost in our own community. As we hear the gospel proclaimed, as we hear the good news that, that as wretches, God came and sent his son, God sent his son into the world uh, to save us, to rescue us, to deliver us from our sins. And so may we uh, be compelled by that gospel to take uh, the, the truth of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ into our neighborhoods, workplaces, schools, homes, families, and wherever the Lord would lead us. Fourthly, let's pray that amidst the political fervor of our time that we would be humble witnesses of God's sovereign grace in Christ. May we 
be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to anger as the temperature rises in the next few weeks and months. May we be those who are dignified and upright in our response to all that's going on in the world today. And when we don't, because many of us at times won't, may we be quick uh, to repent and to seek the Lord's grace and forgiveness. Fifthly, pray that we would cherish the Savior whom we preach and never flee from his presence, even when we are caught up in sin. The worst thing we can do when caught up in some kind of secret sin is to flee or attempt to flee the presence of God or the felt presence of God. If you are caught up in sin, look to Christ. Don't flee from Christ. Flee to Christ and throw yourself into his merciful arms. His blood atones for every sin. His righteousness is the gift of all gifts and gives us a right standing with God. Go to the Lord. Repent of your sin. Throw yourself into his merciful arms and you will know his love and his compassion that's spoken of here in Jonah chapter 4. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for all of the timely lessons from this ancient book. And we know that it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And it brings rebuke and correction and training in righteousness. And we pray, Lord, that it would show us our own sin, that it would show us our need for Christ, and that it would show us the wonderful privilege we have as your sons and daughters, bearing your name, baptized into the name of Christ and in your visible church to take this good news to our neighborhoods and to the nations. And Lord, we joyfully anticipate next week's uh, services uh, focusing on the Great Commission. And we pray that it would further spur us on uh, to be shining lights, bright witnesses, no matter what age or stage, that we would seek to reach out with the love and the truth of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.